0: Well, good morning. like to welcome everyone to the services today. I'm happy that you've chosen to be here. We're grateful that you've chosen to be here. We realize there were a lot of other places you could have been, and we're grateful you've chosen to be here with us. We want to especially welcome any visitors in the audience with us this morning. We want to welcome you to La Prada Drive Church of Christ. If you haven't been here with us before, we pray that you found a place that loves, a place that welcomes, a place that seeks truth, and above all, seeks to worship God in the way that he wants to be worshipped. This morning, I want to start by asking you a very simple question. And that question is, have you ever been broken? And I mean truly, truly hurt. Seriously, at a point in your life where all you can do is, is throw up your hands In a moment where you're just simply waiting for the next thing that can go wrong. I'm sure most of us are are thinking of a situation in our lives right now. Maybe you can't think of a situation in your life, but I promise you, you can think of someone that you know that's gone through this. And it's a sad, sad condition to be in. But you know, sometimes what, what we need is to be broken down. That softening of our hearts, because friends, I'll be honest with you, sometimes we have a hard heart. That's what our own lusts, desires, and worldly wisdom gets us. And for many in the world, that hardness creates a barrier between them and Christ. But it's in times like these where broken people seek solitude. People seek shelter and security. People want relief. They want to believe in something. They search for healing. Search for help look everywhere for answers. People who consider themselves to be atheists begin looking towards a supernatural being in times like these. They search for something higher than themselves, desperately yearning for help. And oftentimes, it's in these situations when people are broken, when they turn to God for answers. And they turn to Christ for peace. And quite frankly, sometimes the church is the only place broken people have left to turn. They've tried everything else. It's in those situations where we see brokenness, where sin and worldliness reign in someone's life when we have an opportunity as Christians to share the Gospel of Jesus Christ to these people seeking help. And of course, as Christians, as a church, we try to help those in need. We try our best to feed the needy, to provide shelter, to heal the sick. But at the end of the day, those who are broken, those who have lost everything, the only solution to their problems ultimately is Jesus Christ. And so we tell them to to seek Jesus, to obey God, to put their faith and trust in God, and sometimes people don't like that answer. They ask, why why do I need to do that? Why do I need Jesus? What can Christ do to help me? What can God do in this situation? Is He going to come down and pay my mortgage? Is He going to come down and fix my marriage? Is Jesus going to save my dying loved one? Is He going to cure this disease? What can Jesus do for me? I'll have you know this morning, this question is a, is a question of supreme importance. And it's a question that gives us a unique opportunity to, to step in and show the love of Christ to someone who is broken. We might consider this question on the board before you as selfish. We might consider it as almost rude, maybe condescending towards Christ. Maybe it's a question that questioned God's power to save. But I want you to know as we begin this morning, this question is not anything new by any means. This question is asked time and time again in different contexts throughout the Bible. What can Jesus do for me? Why do I need Christ? This question is asked in the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. If you want to turn there with me, or the verses will be be on the screen for your convenience, go ahead and bookmark that. We'll be there for the majority of the morning. Hebrews is a book written to the Hebrew people, Jews who knew the old law very well. There are arguments about who wrote the book, whether it was Paul or whether it was Luke, but whoever did write the book obviously knew Mosaic law in great detail. Throughout the book of Hebrews, we see this comparison between things of old and things of new under Jesus Christ. And in the previous chapter, in chapter 7, we see a comparison between the Levitical priesthood that serves the covenant people and the new priesthood of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. Chapter 7 focuses on the supremacy of the priesthood of Christ, the greater nature of the order compared to the Levitical priesthood. And essentially to bring us to where we're going to be in our study this morning, there's a couple of differences that we need to be aware of. Brad, the PowerPoint is not working. But essentially what we need to be aware of, we'll go ahead and start on the T-chart that's not on the board. Um, What we need to be aware of is the, the Levitical priesthood had many different priests. There were priests that came into the temple. These priests would serve the people. They would go in to make sacrifices for the people, but there were multiple priests that would serve. Whereas Jesus' priesthood only had one high priest. And the second thing we need to understand is that Levitical priesthood was bound by time limits, there were temporary services. These were people that, that were human, they could only serve their lifespan. Whereas Christ's priesthood was an eternal priesthood. He is going to reign forever. He was not limited by time. The Levitical priesthood also sacrificed daily in the temple. They were always in there making sacrifices for themselves and for the people. Whereas Jesus's priesthood, Christ's priesthood, was one sacrifice once and for all for sins past, present, and future. Levitical priesthood also made sacrifices for themselves and for the people. These priests were human. These priests had sin, just like you and I. They had to make sacrifices for themselves because they too, just like the people, had sin. Whereas Christ's priesthood, it wasn't necessary that he make a sacrifice for himself because he was perfect. He was sinless. There was no need for the sacrifice. The Levitical priesthood also offered sacrificial animals. The the blood of bull and goats is what they sacrificed to try and roll back or or kind of roll back that sin. Whereas Christ's priesthood was not animals, but He offered up Himself as the holy and perfect Lamb of God once and for all for the great sacrifice. So let's move into chapter 8 this morning with that context in mind. So let's start in chapter 8 and verse 1. The writer in Hebrews says, "...now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum: We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the Majesty." in the heavens. So the writer here of Hebrews says of everything we've talked about so far, of everything we talked about of Christ and of faith and all those differences we just discussed of the priesthood, this is the conclusion. This is what you need to learn. This is what you need to take away. Verse 2, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle with the, which the Lord pitched and not man. So this new great high priest is a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle defined by the flow of the verse there as being built by the Lord. This true tabernacle was not an earthly tent built by a human. It was not built by someone with faults, someone with excuses, lies, deceitfulness, but by the Lord. By someone pure. Faultless. It was a better tabernacle that could not be built by a man. Verse 3, "...for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices." So we just talked about that. Every high priest has to have something to give. They offer sacrifices according to the law. These gifts and sacrifices were made to roll back sin for a year. This concept of sacrificing for sin on behalf of the people is an essential idea at the core of priesthood. You see, these high priests did things for the people. They made intercession for the people, made sacrifices for their own sin and for their people. They were good men. They helped. Continuing on in verse 3, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Under the old law, God's people followed these priests because they needed that guidance, that redemption, that sacrifice. And the Jewish people expected that from their priest. If I do this, if I make these sacrifices, this will be the result. The same thing is true under Christ. As Christians, we expect certain things of our faith, certain fruits. Things like guidance, joy, freedom from sin, remission from sin, and ultimately, salvation. What can Jesus do for me? You see, in Hebrews, we're given the antitype to Christ. We're given the previous version of the high priest, we're given a comparison. And just like the book of Hebrews, we have a comparison in our lives and in the lives of those around us. You see, we have examples of a life with Christ, and we have examples of a life without Christ. So logically, a person without Christ, a non-Christian, could pose the very same question or the very same idea asked by the Jews here in Hebrews. If I'm going to switch my life, if I'm going to go live this life as a Christian, what does that do for me? What can Christ give me? This morning we're going to focus on that idea and we're going to see four different points the book of Hebrews is going to lay out for us. First, we're going to discuss that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. A sacrifice necessary for you and I. Secondly, we'll look at how that sacrifice serves to institute the new covenant. A new law that takes down the old. Thirdly, we'll discuss how someone who is in Christ now has a newfound peace. And we'll close by identifying a newfound purpose and meaning your life can have in Jesus Christ. I hope you're excited to be here. I hope you're excited to worship and and move through this study this morning. The first thing and most important thing I believe we need to take away and is essential to understanding Christianity is that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. Now we know what high priests do. We know what priests do. They make sacrifices. The Levitical priest after Aaron, what did they do? They made sacrifices. As mentioned earlier, we saw the antitype of these high priests. We saw the Levitical priests and what they did for the people. And that's essentially what we asked this morning. Well, what sacrifice was this new high priest going to make? What would Jesus do for us? What sacrifice that he, would He make that the Levitical priesthood could not? The book of Genesis introduces us to the concept of sin. You'll remember there in Genesis that God had formed the heavens and the earth and He created everything we know today. He then forms man from the dust of the ground and brings woman from man. These two people, Adam and Eve, they were close with God, God's people. God had created these individuals to live and serve Him. Adam and Eve were with God in the garden. They would walk with God in the garden and they were to live for God. There was no sin. Man was perfect. Man was sinless, man was close and connected with God. But man had been tempted by the devil. Tempted with the knowledge of God, Satan even tells them they will be as gods. Satan's working against God, corrupting his creation. You know, God doesn't want man to sin. God didn't want to see Adam and Eve fail. God loved Adam and Eve just as he loves you and I. But just like you and I do every single day, Adam and Eve fail. And they give in to that temptation, introducing sin into the world, departing man from God. And that sin allowed death and destruction in the world. That sin separated man from God. That sin and the consequences of sin made it of necessity to have these sacrifices and things of the sort in order to bring man closer to God. It made sacrifices the way to take those consequences and God's wrath of sin off of man. Ever since that sin, ever since that moment, God's been fighting and building plans to bring us back to Him, to bring mankind into a place of peace, a place of comfort and security with God. So what did He do? He gave His people a biblical priesthood, an avenue to provide sacrifice and atonement for sin. All of these done in an attempt to save man. These animal sacrifices were not to erase sin, but like we talked about earlier, to roll back sin for a year. These sacrifices were proven to be faulty. Not the establishment of these sacrifices by God, not the avenue of sacrifice from God being faulty, but rather man's inability to meet the requirements of the old law is what was faulty. Man was to offer burnt sacrifices and so on to atone for their sins, but not to erase those sins. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. A perfect, sinless man to atone for our sins and to take on those sins to erase them. You see, God is perfect. God is righteous. God is holy. But brethren, don't get it wrong. God is also a God of justice and a God of wrath and a God who cannot be in the presence of sin. You owe a debt to God that you could never repay on your own. You owe a debt that can't be cleared by money can't be cleared by anyone in this building, can't be cleared by your own works, and because of that, God's justice demands that that debt be paid. And what is that debt? It's every single one of your sins. And how is that sin paid for? How is that debt counted as loss? In eternity, in hell. But brethren, as much as God is wrathful and as much as He's just, He's also a merciful God and a loving God. He made a way for your sin to be paid for, but He couldn't just forgive that debt and not have it be paid for because that wouldn't be just. And that is where we see the necessity of Jesus Christ and the importance of that sacrifice. Christ came to the earth to live a perfect and sinless life. He's tempted with sins. He's offered kingdoms, yet like, unlike you and I, He resists those sins. In all the Gospels, we see the story of Christ and of His life and of His death. We can see and find in Scriptures He dies on the cross, takes on the sin of the world. 1 Thessalonians 5 and 9 says, For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. Whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Brethren, Christ did something for us we cannot fathom. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That day on the cross... Christ took those beatings, the mockings, the scorning, and he did all of that for you. We came together this morning and remembered the sacrifice in our Lord and Savior. We broke the bread representing the body, the vessel that Christ was beaten in. We took of the fruit of the vine representing the blood that was spilt, the blood that was taken from him with every single swing of those whips, with every hit from the hammers driving those nails further and further into his hands. Every hit from the hammer driving him into his feet. And the spear that would pierce his side. He did all of that to make a sacrifice for your sins and for my sins. He gave up himself being sinless and pure and righteous and perfect to take away your sin and my sin. He took those sins and sacrifices himself in what was the most unjust death, the most unjustified murder in the history of mankind absolutely gruesome but it brings with it the opportunity for you and i to be joined with him and to be reconciled to god and what an amazing story of love that is that a perfect man would die for someone as evil and worthless as me leading into our second point of the morning the second thing christ has done for you is remove the old law and establish the new covenant. As Christ is hanging there on the cross and as He dies, the old covenant is removed and with His death introduces the new covenant. Continuing on in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8, it says, "...but now He hath obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also He is the mediator of a better covenant, which was established upon better promises." You see, this new law, these new promises brought by Jesus are better than the old law and its promises. The more excellent ministry, that is not to say the old law was incorrect, just the new law is better. And that Jesus brought that new covenant. And that new law which is built is accompanied by better promises. What are the promises? The promises of forgiveness of sin, the promise of heaven, promise of eternal life. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. Obviously, there was a problem with the old law. And like we talked about earlier, this was not a problem in the, the design of the old law. It was not a problem with the implementation of the old law. It was a problem in man's ability and incapability to obey the old law. The old law was extremely hard to follow. 600 plus rules. Man was faulted for that, proving the necessity of the new covenant. The writer appeals to logic in verse 7 and says if the old law was perfect and if man could uphold that old law in all its totality and we were all righteous, there would be no need for the new covenant. The sacrifices and atonement of sin from the blood of bulls and goats would have been enough. We wouldn't have needed Jesus. Continuing on, for finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. You see, Jesus brings with his death and with his ministry the sacrifice implementation of the new covenant, a better covenant, a better law, connecting God closer to his people. This law brings with it the the expansion, for lack of a better word, of the kingdom of God. The Gentiles are now in the fold. God no longer requires of us sacrifices of animals and these burnt offerings found in Levitical times because Jesus made the perfect, ultimate sacrifice. The one sacrifice that brings with it the possibility of salvation and total forgiveness of sins to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God offers every person an opportunity to join Him in glory. The opportunity to obey that gospel and the new law, the doctrine of baptism to gain the remission of sins, and salvation's established in the gospel. Can you imagine what this would have been like to the people reading Hebrews, to the Jewish people? Hearing this new message about this Messiah they had been waiting on for thousands of years. First of all, he wasn't exactly what they expected. He wasn't a warrior. He wasn't some ultimate conqueror. He was a carpenter, a shepherd, someone who was willing to give his life up for the sheep. Secondly, the message, this gospel message was now going to all people. These people we've been at odds with, these Gentiles, they're now in the fold. Thirdly, we don't have to keep all those laws anymore. All these laws we've been following all our lives. No more rules, no more regulations with all that stuff. No more constant sacrificing to roll back sin. You're telling me this one sacrifice covers everything? This was a huge shock to the Jewish culture. So let's take a minute to discuss this new covenant and how we come into that covenant. Acts 2 shows us the first sermon after the resurrection of Christ and is given by the the apostles. And here we see the first conversion of Christians under the new law. Starting in verse 36, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made this same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they had heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the Holy Ghost. You see, Peter teaches these thousands the Gospel. He teaches them what Christ has done for them. So Peter preached the Word. They heard the Word. The Word pricks their heart. And so the flow of that passage means they believed the Word. They understood the power of the Gospel. They understand Christ is the Son of God, that Christ had died for them, saved them from their sins, And they stand up, and they ask Peter, what shall we do? He answers, tells them, repent of your sins, be baptized in the name of Jesus. You see, they had to do something that day. They asked Peter, what do we do? And he told them, repent and be baptized. Friends, the gospel message is no different for us today. We must do something. And we're commanded, folks, to be baptized, to get up and get in that water. And this idea of action-based obedience is not anything new to Christianity or new to the full realm of God's plan. You see, Christ said men had to do something. Luke 6 and 46 says, "...And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say?" The apostles talked of this in Revelations 22 and 14. They said, "...Blessed are they that do His commandments." that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into that city. James speaks of it in James 1 and 21. He says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. And brethren, this plan of salvation is no different. You must do something. Responding to the gospel call in baptism. And brethren, I want to stress the importance of baptism this morning because the effects are so great. After we're baptized, we receive the Holy Ghost according to the Scriptures and receive that full remission of sins, allowing us to inherit the promise of heaven, promise of eternal life. Have you been baptized this morning? Do you have that peace that comes along with knowing your sins are forgiven? I hope and pray that you do. And if you haven't been, I urge you to consider that strongly this morning. But you see, this new law doesn't require us to sacrifice animals and atone for those sins, for those sacrifices, because Jesus made the perfect sacrifice. Let's take a look at 1 Peter 3 and 21. Starting in verse 18, it says, "...for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit." By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who has gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Here we see the comparison of something that happened aforetime in the days of Noah. We see the long suffering of God in which he waits for Noah to build the ark. You see, God's grace to Noah has allowed Noah to be saved. God's grace and his mercy allow Noah a chance at survival, but Noah still has to perform an action. Noah still has to perform that work of faith to obtain that mercy. But brethren, notice Noah has to do something. It was a free gift, but that gift had to be opened. So what does he do? He builds the ark exactly the way God requested it. Go for wood and all. You see, Noah had to do what God asked exactly the way he asked it to obtain salvation from the flood. Let me ask you a question. If you would have made it out of oak... Do you think he would have been saved? Probably not. He didn't obey the commandments of God. And now the like doctrine, the antitype, also saves us. You see, God's grace allowed him to send Jesus to the cross on our behalf. Unlike the old law, we're given a free gift, the gift of Christ who made that sacrifice for us. But just like Noah, while that grace is great, there is still something you must do. We have to be baptized into the blood of Jesus, burying our old self and rising to walk as a Christian, obtaining the remission of sins. This is the new law, the new and better promise we have as Christians, the hope to obtain full, total forgiveness of sins and salvation by following that new form of doctrine. And so what does this new law grant us? Why is, it, why is obeying that new form of doctrine, what does that gain us that the levitical law or the mosaical law could not hebrews 8 ends in the chapter with verses 12 and 13 that says for i will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will i remember no more and that he saith the new covenant he hath made the first old now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away god promises us to remember our sins no more to forgive those sins in totality according to that new law, meaning it was a better covenant, a better promise brought to you by the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior. That old law was faulty. We were faulty. And now Jesus made it easier for you to obtain forgiveness and be reconciled with God by the sacrifice on the cross. The establishment of that new law is one of the many things Jesus Christ has done for you. But Christians can gain many things from Christ. Oftentimes as humans, we we like to look for something called instant gratification. We need something tangible, something measurable, something worth our time, worth our effort to work work towards. In times like these, maybe broken people are sitting there thinking, what can the sacrifice of Jesus do for me right now? What is that sacrifice, what is that going to help with when I'm broken in my life? I believe one of the greatest blessings that we can receive and are given by trusting in Christ is the Word of God and the comfort and peace that it brings. Ephesians 2 teaches us that this peace can be obtained through His death on the cross. Ephesians 2 and verse 11 says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who were sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For He is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments, contained in the ordinances, for to make Himself of twain one new man, So making peace. And then he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. And came and preached peace to you which were afar off and to them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. This perfectly describes what we're discussing this morning. This comparison between someone who knows Christ and someone who does not know Christ is the evidence of peace. The Gentiles, who can be compared to someone who does not know God, lacked peace until Christ came into the world. They had no way to know God, thus lacking peace. This comparison means simply, without God, peace cannot be known. And one thing Jesus can do for you this morning is bring you peace in your life. Have you been searching for peace? I'm not talking about peace between nations a war versus peace type deal but the peace that passes all understanding that supernatural ability for for lack of a better words as a christian you have to stare at a situation in your life and say you know i don't know what god's plan is here i don't know where you're going to take this one lord but i trust you and i know these things play a part in your will and i will trust that will it's a peace that allows comfort a peace that allows confidence confidence in your salvation because of what Jesus does for you. You see, every bad thing this world has to offer, every sin, every tragedy, all the wars, all the issues was made peaceful and made perfect at the cross. We as Christians can have that peace and have the capacity to become righteous with God and spend that eternal life with Him in heaven. And that's a hope that cannot be generated and a peace that does not exist outside of God and outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Acts 10 and verse 34 says, Then Peter opened his mouth and said, Of a truth I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. But in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel preaching peace by Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Romans 5 and 1 says, Therefore being justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. By whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Romans 8 and 5 says, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. The only life that can generate and maintain peace as a life that seeks after God and strives to live after the example set before us from Christ. One of the greatest blessings and greatest things Jesus can do for you this morning is bring your life peace. Lastly this morning, Jesus can give you purpose and meaning in your life. For thousands of years, since the very beginning of knowledge and wisdom, man has been trying to figure out what their purpose was on earth. Great philosophers have pondered this question for ages and ages, seeking to understand what their purpose is. Aristotle says happiness is the meaning and the purpose of life, the whole aim and end of human existence. So is happiness the full meaning? As long as we're happy, as long as my life's going well, it has purpose. Einstein says try not to become a man of success, but rather try to become a man of value. So is value something attainable, something tangible like respect? Friends, famous, whatever the case is, knowing the most people, is that the meaning of life? Joanne Wolfgang Van Gogh says, just trust yourself, then you'll know how to live. You ever tried that one? So it's just trusting yourself, your own understanding of the world, and just going with our gut. Is that what we're supposed to do? Is that the purpose of life? See how far that one gets you. These are all messages the world is trying to tell us. You can't love others till you love yourself. Love is love. Live your best life. It doesn't matter what you're doing. The world has a stranglehold on our culture, and we all know it. We hear these types of messages all the time on Facebook and our songs. When your children come home from school, they'll tell you what they heard at school. You see, the world is desperately seeking for meaning. People are hungry for purpose, but sadly, the world and many people in the world are simply looking in the wrong place. I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Ecclesiastes as we bring this sermon to a close this morning and talk about King Solomon for a moment. You see, King Solomon was a very wise man. He was a very rich ruler. He had everything he could possibly dream of in his life. Ecclesiastes 1, starting in verse 1, says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What profit hath a man of all his labor which he taketh under the sun? One generation passeth away, and another generation cometh, but the earth abideth forever. Solomon begins in Ecclesiastes searching and striving for the meaning or purpose of life. He's a great seeker of purpose. He wants to know what his meaning is. What's my destiny? Solomon goes on to ask God for all wisdom. Picking up in verse verse 13, he says, "...and I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all the things that are done under heaven. This sword travaileth God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. I have seen all the works that that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit." That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. I commune with mine own heart, saying, lo, I am come to a great estate and have gotten more wisdom than all they that, are in, that have been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. You see, Solomon becomes the wisest man to ever live. He pursues that knowledge, that earthly wisdom to no end. He strives and strives and strives until he obtains it all. He accomplishes his task. He's wiser than anyone. So surely that's the meaning of life. He goes on to say in verse 17, And I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit, that meaning a grieved, troubled, perplexed spirit, essentially a waste of time leading to emptiness. For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. Solomon fails at becoming satisfied through wisdom. He finds it all. He knows it all. You remember the story of him with the two mothers and the baby? Just one example of that great wisdom. He knows everything, and he's not satisfied. He's not fulfilled. That's not the meaning of life, and that's not his purpose. So what is? Well, if it's not knowledge, it's not wisdom, it's got to be money. It's got to be treasure, material things, whatever the case is, sexual desires. It has to be one of those. And Solomon would go on to test that theory too. He seeks after worldly pleasures. He seeks after material things. Pick up in chapter 2 and verse 4. He said, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem, before me, I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers, and the delights of the sons of men as mu- musical instruments, and all that of sorts. So I was great and increased more than, all, more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was the portion. Of all my labor. So Solomon gathers all that wealth. He has all these wives, all this fun, all these things. Very wealthy, very rich. He has everything he wants. Surely that is the meaning of life to obtain good things, to be wealthy, to be rich. Surely that's it. This is the end of it all. This is our purpose to have everything we want. To drive nice cars, to have money, to be rich, to be happy with our family, whatever the case is. Solomon concludes this thought by saying, then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on all the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit and there was no profit under the sun. So if someone as wise as Solomon, someone who pursues wisdom and knowledge to no avail, and comes up empty. Pursues worldly things, worldly pleasures to no end, and again, comes up empty. So there's no meaning in those. You won't be satisfied after seeking those things. So the question is, what is our purpose? A life seeking God, and a life keeping His commandments is our purpose on earth. Solomon closes the chapter in Ecclesiastes, or closes the book of Ecclesiastes, and In Ecclesiastes 12 and verse 11, he says, The words of the wives are his goads and his nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. And further by these my son be admonished of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the whole conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Solomon understands what the meaning of life is. He goes to no end trying to become satisfied with himself and keeps coming up empty. He concludes with this right here Fear God and keep his commandments. That is our meaning. That is our purpose in life. So, this morning, do you feel like your life has purpose? Maybe you've lost that sense of purpose. Or maybe you have this purpose, but man, life sure is tough. We all recognize this morning that life is hard, and it is. It's tough. And sometimes it gets so tough that it can just break you down. Once again, are you broken this morning? It's because life can do that to you as well. But sometimes that brokenness is exactly what you need. Sometimes that brokenness is the only way we can find our way back to Christ. Christ can give you purpose in your life. He can give you a peace you can't obtain on your own. He can give you a life worth living. He can give you a life that will leave you satisfied at the end of it. He can give you something worth fighting for, something worth studying and learning, and He can give you meaning and purpose. This morning we've talked about some of the things Jesus has done for us, some of the things He can give you. With all the chaos in today's world, don't look to humans for answers. Don't look towards governments. Don't put your faith in people. Put your faith and put your trust and your purpose in someone who loves you. Someone who freely gives you all things. Someone who does these things for you, gives you peace, gives you purpose. This morning may be your last chance to be reconciled with God and to be baptized into His blood for the remission of your sins. We talked of the necessity of being baptized and how baptism resembles that death and resurrection. And you have an opportunity this morning to make that choice. But, brethren, the choice is yours. I can't make that decision for you. The elders can't make that decision for you. It's got to be your choice. Will you make that choice this morning? If you will, please come forward as we stand and as we sing. Hear the blessed a